Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial. Today, we're very pleased and honored to be welcoming back to the program Paul Thigpen. We're going to be discussing his new book, The Life of St. Joseph, as seen by the mystics joe Rossinello, that's an interesting title which i'm sure we're gonna we're gonna get into um and for all of you out there remember we always emphasize we have to support not just our our catholic authors and those that are churning out the information and the knowledge that we need but those who publish them so in this case it is tan books and also you could buy it from your local catholic bookstore um if need be if need be, you can get it on Amazon. Just throwing it out there, but you know Joe and Joe are going to forbid you from doing so. Um, so just very quickly, most of you out there know Paul Thigpen, but just in case uh, his name is uh, not familiar to you, uh, Paul Thigpen, Ph.D., is an internationally known speaker, best-selling author, and award-winning journalist. He's published 60 books, including the Manual for Spiritual Warfare, Saints Who Saw Hell, and The Rapture Trap. In addition, he has published more than 500 journal and magazine articles in more than 40 religious and secular periodicals. His work's been circulated worldwide and translated into 16 languages. Uh, Paul Thigpen graduated summa cum laude from Yale University with a BA in religious studies, awarded the Woodruff, Javits, and Salvatore Fellowships for graduate study. He earned an MA and PhD in historical theology from Emory University. Uh, and in 2008, Paul was appointed by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops to their naval and, uh, excuse me, National Advisory Council. He also served the church as a university, uh, university theology professor, historian, apologist, catechist, and musician. That's a mouthful, but Paul seems to have done it all, including playing with the Grateful Dead. No, 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 I'm just kidding. He never, he never played with the Grateful Dead. Um, but Paul Thigpen, welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe, brother. Joe and Joe. Brothers, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So we got four Josephs here. We got Joe and Joe. Paul's middle name is Joe, and we're talking about St. Joseph. This has got to be a great conversation. Well, let's just He's, say a uh, prayer for the, to the Blessed Mother, and we'll include St. Joseph at the end. Uh, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly into you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, for you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. Well, Mother, the Word incarnate, despise not a petitions, but in your clemency, hear and answer us. Amen. amen. Saint Joseph, pray, pray for, for us. us. Pray for in the name us. of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, Paul, I guess like a good place to start, and I just want to say this: it's so edifying, you know, with regard to what Joe and I do that we'd speak with people like yourself. And I and I I, I want to say this because you wrote sixty books that have been translated into sixteen languages. Why do I say that? Is is this too many people? I mean, we all went to college. 
They go to college. They want to make tons of money. Um, you're a gifted person. You went to Yale. You know, I, I, and I'm Joe's brother went to Yale, actually. Um, I want to just say this because Americans don't do that. They don't write about St. Joseph. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's be honest with you. And I'm not just I, I don't want to, like, you know, make you feel embarrassed. Like, but I got to say it, you know, because it's true. I knew people who went to Penn. I had friends and they're not writing about St. Joseph. <laughs> let, let me just say that, you know, it's not an American idea. You know, God says very clearly, those who've been given much, much is expected, and you were a good steward of those gifts. I, I want to say that, and and because it's true. And and to be honest with you, not enough Americans take that route. That's kind of you, Joe. Thank you so much. All, all I can say is, uh, excuse me, as a teenager, well, from the age of 12 to 18, I was an atheist. Became a convinced atheist. I was raised in a, a Protestant denomination, but... And at the age of 18, had a rather dramatic conversion experience. And um, so I have never been able to take the Lord for granted. And I'm also a convert to the Catholic faith. I used to be a Protestant pastor. And um, and I can never take our Catholic faith for granted. I, I know what it's like to be, you know, to wake up as an atheist in the morning and say, what's the point of life? I mean, why am I even here? I know what it's it's like to, to wake up in the morning. And and as, as rich as my faith was, um, still not be able to 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 delve into the lives of the saints and to have their com communion, um, all the things that I you know is missing that I have now. So what else can I do? I mean, I, uh, just even majoring in religious studies. You know, people are telling me at Yale and beyond, what are you going to do with that? How you can't make any money doing that, and I can't. <laughs> but I thought I've I've got a few years here. I can choose a major and, and study something that I concentrate on for several years. What's the most important thing I could do that? What, what, you know, I don't want to waste that. And I thought, yeah, give me, let me study God. Let me study God during that time. And the rest of my life, I've been just trying to learn more and, and share the share the riches that I keep discovering, especially in our Catholic faith. So uh, when you have something that you really treasure, you, you want to give it away. Sure. Paul, let me ask you a question. Let's just for a second. Um, I promise I won't. I won't be too uh, harsh on our on our atheist brothers and sisters today. Uh, but a lot of atheists would say, "Well, that is the point. You you wake up in the morning and you realize that there is nothing. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. The universe is a brute fact, according to Richard Dawkins. And of course, you know he knows everything. That's what we're told. Um, how do you respond to that? Because they would look at someone like you and many atheists. Let's face it. They don't like to broadcast it. Right? There's a lot of atheists who have converted, uh, not just to, let's say, the Catholic faith, but it, it, even if it's just a religious belief in general. And they hate that. And they say, well, that's the delusion. They're just people who are seeking something. I would argue you are, too. It's already in you to seek something. Just a quick comment, if you don't mind, on that, Paul. Yeah, just to say I, I didn't become a Christian from atheism because uh, it was just something I wanted, you know, and and convinced myself it's got to be true. Um, I was dead set against it, and then the Lord began to move on me. I had a number of experiences that we'll go into now, but convinced me that my materialist worldview at the time that that everything was just matter and energy. I didn't think there was a soul or an afterlife or God or devil or any of that. Angels. <clears throat> I had very powerful experiences that convinced me otherwise. And uh, someone talks, C.S. Lewis once once said, the great you know Christian convert writer, that uh, when he converted, he was the most reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> and, uh, and I wouldn't say that about myself. But I, wh what I'm trying to say is I didn't do it because I 
I wanted to feel better by any means. I came to be convinced it was the truth. And once I embraced that truth, that truth, like Jesus said, it set me free, set me free to, to purpose, to, to meaning, to beauty, to, to goodness, um, to all the other things that make life worth living. And so, um, uh, so when I say that, you know, I woke up every morning without, without purpose, all I'm really saying is that I, I know now, I, I, I'm at the place now where I appreciate so much the glory of what is true, because it is true. And absolutely difference. Yeah, absolutely. Just so, so let me, let me start here. Um, uh, just to ask you this. So a lot of people might look at that and say, well, I can understand someone who's an atheist converting to some sort of view of a creator, deistic kind of God. But that to say an atheist becomes Christian, then becomes Catholic and writes 60 books, one of which is on St. Joseph. Okay. They would say, oh, come on. That's no, that can't happen. Uh, that, that, you, but you did. And you're not, you know, you've written, as we said, you've written 60 books, but now you pick St. Joseph. Um, is he why Saint Joseph? He is he a saint you you personally look to? What was your what was your reasoning in choosing Joseph in particular? Well, when I was going through RCA preparing to become Catholic, you know, they told us you've got to choose a saint for your confirmation, saint your personal patron, and that you know I took that very seriously. I'm not just taking the name or wearing the badge that night. He's I'm looking for someone that will be a lifelong friend who can help me both by his example and by his intercession to to do what I need to do to, to live in the life of grace. And, um, and the two, two folks that came down to were St. Augustine and St. Joseph, because St. Augustine, I was preparing to be a theologian and he's, he actually helped me to become Catholic by reading him. But then the other was St. Joseph because I'm a husband and father and, and so I really need help with that. And I finally decided that I needed help <laughs> to be a husband and father much more than I did a theologian, or at least that that was my primary vocation. So I chose St. Joseph, and he's meant so much over the years. He's never let me down. He's um, been a you know patron really for our whole family. Our, our home here in the mountains is called St. Joseph's Refuge. And we have images of him everywhere, and we have a stone pillar out front that has St. Joe on it. It's, no, it's a great story. I wish I could tell sometime. But um, he was so many family matters, so many marriage and, and uh, real estate and everything else. And by real estate, I mean homes. Um, what more could I ask for? And then it just seemed like an obvious thing. Uh, in the last couple of years, of course, we've we've had an emphasis on St. Joseph, the year of St. Joseph. So it seemed, you know, this is a good time that people are beginning to ask, who was that man? Um, why don't we turn to to these folks who have visions of him and see what we can offer the church? Absolutely. So the book is The Life of St. Joseph, as seen by the mystics. The author who is with us today at the front line with Joe and Joe is Paul Thegpen. Joe Resinello, I'm going to hand it over to you. Before we get into the mystics, I just want to focus on the man, St. Joseph, for a moment. He never said a word in Scripture. He's a mystery. He is a mystery. I mean, I've heard people say he was an old man. He was married before. I've heard, like, a lot of different things from different people about him. Um, what I want to, like, basically emphasize is he is the patron saint of the universal church. I've also heard this about St. Joseph. He is the saint after Mary. That is quite a statement to make. I mean, you mentioned St. Augustine. The man was brilliant. We could go Bonaventure, brilliant. Aquinas, brilliant. St. Joseph didn't say a word, not a single solitary word. And he is revered. I don't think people think about that enough. 
Because what he did was basically what most men do, their husbands and fathers. And he is revered, which basically says that role is so important. Do you think that's talked about enough? Because I don't. Father Callaway did the book, you know, recently. It's it was quite a, you know, a big, you know, splash across the world. I think he understood that. You clearly do. Talk about that. Cause I don't think Catholics focus on his simplicity versus the importance the church puts on on him. Well, again, my, my background as a as a Protestant pastor and, and not diminishing it, um, scripture was kind of all we had. And, uh, and, and scripture is a beautiful thing, but because there was so little about him, he, he didn't have any words recorded. Um, naturally, we you know didn't have much to say. I become Catholic and start discovering all these these other things about you know tradition about him. But but I still, <clears throat> looking back, I realized that even before I had the Catholic tradition, when all I had was the scripture, what I could have done and what I've come to do is to ask a simple question you know that okay what what are the just what are the immediate implications of what we do know from scripture what do we know from scripture we know that of all the men who have ever lived throughout the history of the world in every country in every culture only one could be appointed to be the guardian of the son of god and his mother only one and this is the one that god chose if that's the case what kind of man must he have been? And all the rest that you have to say, I think you see in the light of that question. If God made that decision, chose that man, then there must be all kinds of things so very special about him. He must have been, Scripture tells us he was a righteous man, he was a just man, and, and so many other things. But what you do is you begin to look at the implicate, just the immediate implications of what we see in Scripture. And you begin to see what kind of man he was. And in that light, he is the greatest after Mary of the saints. St. Augustine, as wonderful as, as he is, and I love him dearly. Going to be doing a podcast about him soon. Um, he wasn't chosen to be the guardian of the Son of God. He wasn't chosen to be the guardian of Our Lady. And all the other saints that are so wonderful and so great, and I love him dearly. But St. Joe, he's the man. So, Paul, real quick, um, give us a, a quick nutshell definition. What is, first of all, a mystic? Some people are mystified by that word. They don't know what it means. What is, what is a mystic? How do you define mystic? Shortly, briefly. Yeah, it's a uh, mystical experience would be uh, experience of um, usually in prayer, uh, connected to prayer, a religious figure, if we're speaking specifically about Catholic mystics, in which they... <clears throat> They have an encounter with God that seems to, to have a kind of a supernatural component to it, certainly preternatural component. They're, they're not just reading scripture and getting an idea, but often it has to do with uh, locutions that they hear, things that they hear from God or from the saints, uh, maybe visions, things that they see. And so when you speak of someone as a mystic, typically it's someone who had a lot of that experience. I mean, a lot of us, I've had mystical experiences before, and I think many Catholics have. But when we say a mystic, we usually mean someone who, through a good portion of their life, uh, had that experience repeatedly. So when you look at, let's say, the, the title of your book, The Life of St. Joseph, as seen, keyword there, seen by the mystics from out from Tam Books. Please go buy it at Tam Books. So what, what do some of these mystics, uh, well, who are they? Maybe some of the more notable ones. And what do they say? You write about this in your book. What do they say they've seen 
about St. Joseph? What was revealed to them, I guess is a better way to put it, um, about St. Joseph? Well, you have, as you said, some that, that we, a lot of folks know pretty well. Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich, today is her feast day, in fact. Okay. German mystic of the, of the 1800s. Um, St. Bridget of, of Sweden. Uh, many, many mystical revelations throughout her life. <clears throat> Another well-known uh, Mary de Agreda, or Maria de Agreda, Spanish mystic, 16th century, 1500s. Um, and then uh, one that I didn't know is, as well, uh, Maria Baiz, who is uh, an Italian mystic. And um, her particular writing, she had a, a like a book length um, uh, you know, claim to revelation that focused on St. Joseph. The others that I drew from uh, focused, their, their visions focused on Our Lady, but necessarily included a lot about St. Joseph. And in fact, Tam Book reprinted back in the, um, the 80s, a book that had been written in the 50s by Raphael Brown compiled, in which he drew from several mystics and wrote what he called the life of Mary, as seen, seen by the mystics. <clears throat> so what, what Tam wanted to do and what I, what I heard it, I said, pick me, pick me. Um, was to do a similar thing for St. Joseph, drawing from some of the same uh, mystics, but also some others as well. And awesome. uh, boy, to, to start talking about what they you know saw and heard, um, I guess that's that's pretty much what the, the whole podcast today is about. There's a lot well, it's also say. what the book is about. So we, we that's why we're encouraging, mm -hmm. we're, we're talking to you, and that's why we're asking people to go out and obviously buy your book. Uh, Joe Racinello, where do you want to go? Basically juxtapose what you just said, how the church relates to that. Obviously, you know, as a Catholic, we look at scripture, tradition, magisterium. Um, I say that because not a lot has, as you already echoed, uh, not a lot is written in scripture about St. Joseph. How does the church look at these private revelations from mystics? Clearly, they have the stamp of approval, but juxtapose that, you know, versus, you know, the gospel tradition. How does it all kind of merge in perfectly? Yeah, Joe, that's an you know essential question to understand this. I have a big introduction of the book to kind of lay it out. And I and I hope anyone who reads the book won't go straight to the story, but they'll start with the introduction. Uh, because I have met folks who have turned to some of the writings of these mystics and treated it as if it were gospel and straight history and that kind of thing. But the church is very clear that um there are kind of two kinds of revelation, the two categories. One is public revelation, and that's uh, also called the deposit of faith. That was the, the truth that was given to us uh, by Christ through his apostles to the church. We have it in scripture. We have it in tradition. It's interpreted authentically by the magisterium. And that, that revelation, then we're obligated as Catholics to, to embrace it in faith, and we can rely on it as, as being true. Um, but after, and, and after the death of the last apostle, none of the public revelation was given anymore. Interpretation, certainly by the magisterium, but that deposit of faith was complete. However, there have been since that time uh, many saints, others not recognized as saints, who make claims that, uh, that God has revealed things directly to them privately. Uh, locutions, things they hear, visions, things they see, could be external visions, could be interior visions. And what the church says is that, yes, God does that sometimes, and and it's important to, to pay attention to that. Uh, but we have to remember, uh, first of all, that not every claim to private revelation is a legitimate claim. And uh, second, even if the church examines a particular person's claims, um, <clears throat> and even if they give it an approval in the sense of saying uh, this is not contrary to faith or morals, and it can be read with uh, not only without danger, but with with uh, benefit spiritually. The church is not saying, now this is gospel. 
the church is not even saying no it's history and i had uh you know, i had one interviewer kind of push back about the history thing say well i think it's it's still history just not gospel but one of the things you find when you start looking at the, the mystics in this this area is that among themselves their visions disagree um and sometimes on very important points not small things so you have one of the mystics for instance that i you know, drew from who in her vision saw that mary's parents uh Anna and jo joachim the two of them had died before she and Joseph were betrothed. <clears throat> but another one saw Joaquin dying, Anna remarrying, and then Anna giving great support material and otherwise to the Holy Family in their early years. Now, both of those can't be you know, historically true. Mm -hmm. And so that should be an indicator to us um, that, that as you know, many of church representatives and folks, mystical theologians, as they're called, have studied, that it's not intended to be gospel or even history. It, it doesn't mean that none of it's historical, uh, that it never actually happened, but that we can't uh, expect it to be history that God is producing more like a, what I like to call a sacred drama that draws us close to, to St. Joseph and through him to our Lord, that <clears throat> I like to compare it to Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. Uh, those who saw that powerful movie, for so many of us, it brought us much closer to the Lord, to Our Lady, and, but if you remember, there are scenes in there that are not from the gospel and had to be in order to have a, you know, feature-length film. Uh, where did those come from? Perhaps some from uh, Gibson's imagination, but several of them came from the same mystics that I'm drawing from here. So, for instance, the scene where, uh, where our, 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 our Blessed Mother and Mary Magdalene are furiously with white linens trying to clean up the precious blood off the stones where the scourging had been. Very powerful scene. And then another woman comes in, turns out it's it's Claudia, who by tradition was the wife of Pontius Pilate and eventually became a, a convert herself, comes in. That's a very powerful scene. And you learn so many things by looking at it about what Our Lady endured. And you learn about how precious the blood of Jesus is and things like that. Uh, it's, it's not a claim that that was an historical scene, and nobody expects it in Gibson's movie to be that. But boy, is it powerful, and boy, does it bring us close uh, to the saints and to our Lord. So it's a similar kind of thing. It's, it's as if these visions fuse together uh, realistic detail with, with this visionary uh, power and, and understanding. And so that's how we, how we approach it, and it's a very powerful way to approach it. Um, you know, so for instance, if, if one one of the mystics sees Jesus, Joseph as being old and another one sees him as young, it, it doesn't matter <laughs> because the points that uh, that are in there are very powerful spiritual points. They, I like to say these mystics weren't doctors of theology and they weren't doctors of history or science, but they most certainly were doctors of the soul, teachers of the soul. And they understood the soul and, and God did give them, uh, I believe, in these these visions, very, very powerful understanding of things that, that we need to know. Paul Thegpian has joined us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. The life of St. Joseph is seen by the mystics. That is out from Tam Books, and we encourage everybody to go and buy it. Also at your local Catholic bookstores and Amazon, if necessary. Um, now, the mystics have something to say or have, have been revealed something in regards. Let's talk about uh, things that I, I didn't know. Uh, we were doing research for this interview. Uh, Joseph's upbringing from, from, let's say, his childhood up up to manhood uh comment on that a little bit what do, what do the mystics have to say about that what's what's revealed well what they what they saw uh you know and again the details weren't all the same uh in one case uh they they saw more that uh that joseph's parents were quite devout 
uh, and another they saw that they were nice people and kind of kind of busy with their lives and didn't pay a lot of attention to them. And what I had to do in this, but by the way, I should mention, I didn't just say, here's a segment of here's what this person saw, then here's what this person saw. I drew from all of them and wove it together into a single narrative. So it reads more like a biographical novel. And because of that, there are certain things that then I had to either choose one or the other if they were in tension or, you know, not mention the thing at all. But what I did choose were the, the passages from one of the mystics in particular, who saw him growing up in a, in a family that uh, wasn't well-to-do but wasn't poor um, and had brothers who mistreated him. And uh, very interesting, I've had you know, a number of people note that uh, you may have heard before that there seemed to be parallels between St. Joseph of the New Testament and St. Joseph of the Old Testament. And uh, and that in this story, this is one of the parallels. They don't even bring it out in the vision, but it's there if you if you think about it. That Joseph in the Old Testament was mistreated by his brothers, and uh, so that you see that happening, and how he's still responding to it with with great grace and humility, and then finally getting to the time to the place where he felt I just have to get out of here. <laughs> so he's old enough to do it. It's not like he ran away from home, uh, but found another place uh, to live and was growing in holiness at the time then. Uh, when God chose him for the betrothal. So th those are some of the things that imported it. He also, th they saw him, one of them saw him being trained by an, an older teacher who was a very wise man. So in some ways kind of providing what his parents could not have provided. Thanks for that, Paul Thigpen. Joe Racinello, before we go to a break, we got time to start a question. Let's talk about Joseph's the dream uh, when he goes to Egypt. Uh, clearly that's a mystery. Um, I, I, I will tell both of you as a father of five <clears throat> in the morning when I pray, I pray to God that if I have to get out of here, New Jersey, and as one go flee into the wilderness, that you tell me and tell me where to go. You know, as, as you know, I have to take care of my family. And that's what God did for Joseph. And he responded immediately. He immediately, I mean, he didn't speak. The language in Egypt. Think about that from a perspective of any man who's listening. He had a job, he has a family, he has a home, and God's like, "You got to go to Egypt." If you know, if God said that to me, I'd be like, "Well, I, well, I don't speak Egyptian, God. What, what do you, <laughs> you want me to go to Egypt?" But He did. Talk about that. What did you write about? That is to me one of the most powerful kind of scenarios in the in the whole story. When you again, what we. What we know from scripture is that he gets a dream. The father says, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt. Herod wants to kill him. And that's pretty much you know, all we hear there. And then that he gets up and does it immediately. It sounds like in the middle of the night. Um, so you know, I mentioned before, when you, one of the things we should do with scripture is take a, take a scenario like that. We know about Joseph and then ask the question, what kind of man would do that? What kind of man could do that? was capable of doing that. And so the kind of things you're talking about, you, you have to think about all those things. First of all, probably, I don't know for sure, but probably the two tools of his trade are back in Nazareth. He didn't have that. Second, um, he probably doesn't know anybody in Egypt. It's a foreign country. Third, he doesn't, as you mentioned, probably wouldn't have known the language. Fourth, he knows it's a pagan country and they probably didn't like Jewish people and didn't like their religion. Um, Fourth, the, the way there was very dangerous. He wouldn't have a map. He didn't have GPS. <laughs> uh, but he would have known that the roads leading down into Egypt would have been full of robbers, you know, brigands, or, 
and they didn't just rob you. They often would either kill you or, or sell your family into slavery if you know if you were captured. Um, and and venomous snakes and all kinds of things. Where would the water come from? Where would the food come from? So many things. So in the light of all that, what kind of man would it take in the middle of the night to get that dream and say, yes, sir, and do it? Paul, we're going to come back from the break, and you're going to tell us what kind of man would do that. Paul Thigpen is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello. Way in the Breach, The Life of St. Joseph is Seen by the Mystics. That is out from Tam Books. That's Paul's new book. We just encourage you all to please go out and buy it. Uh, download our app, the, Ver the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app, so you have access to all of our station's content. And also, please, wherever you see Joe and I, if you like what we do uh, on social media, we have the front line with Joe and Joe on YouTube and at with Joe and Joe, at with Joe and Joe on Twitter. Please help us out wherever you can. So Paul Thigpen, Joe and Joe, we'll be right back. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith, families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So... Let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello. We are way in the breach with Paul Thigpen. So before the, uh, before the break, Paul was laying out, you know, this, the, the mission to Egypt, how dangerous it was. Joseph has to take the Holy Family because he is commanded by the angel to do so. And the question that Paul asked that now he's going to answer is, well, what kind of what kind of guy would do that? What kind of man would do that? Paul, you have the stage. Well, and all the things we mentioned, facing the dangers, not knowing how in the world he's going to provide for his family, how they're going to live in this pagan culture. What, what's it going to be like not just to get there, but to live there? And and I would say, wow, it takes a man of remarkable faith a man of remarkable trust in God, confidence, a man of remarkable love for his wife and her child, um, that he would sacrifice whatever he had to for them, uh, a man of remarkable courage that he's going to face all these things. Uh, he probably didn't have any weapons. <laughs> What's he going to do if the thieves come after him? And in the story, <clears throat> that's exactly what does happen. On the road, they're apprehended by a band of thieves who have a very complicated setup where People who come through and can't defend themselves, they capture them, they take everything they have, and then they either kill them or sell them into slavery, including the children. So um, he does start out, he goes on, and and what the mystics saw was very powerful, beautiful scenes of God's provision for them, that God responded to Joseph's faith in so many ways by making food available, by making even water available when they didn't have it, and um, and especially by protecting them. When the thieves came, there's a there's a lovely story there uh, that kind of corresponds to, a, to an old tradition. And by that, I don't mean capital T tradition, but it could be just legendary. But there's an old tradition that uh, that when the Holy Family was on their way to Egypt, that thieves did set upon them and that one of them right away said, don't touch this family. Don't bother them. And made the other thieves back off and that that thief was the good thief on the cross many years later, and that in some ways the grace that came to him was his reward for having spared them. And he he has his reward in, in being with Jesus in paradise that day. Beautiful thought. And this one, it's a little different. 
uh, a man does say, don't hurt them. And he takes them into his home. The thief does. But it turns out his son is Dismas and his son has leprosy. And the mother, his wife, says to Mary after she bathes Jesus and uh, gives him his bath, can I have the bath water and pour it on my son? And so for her already an act of faith that there's something so special about this little boy that I think he can heal my son. And they do, and he is healed, and, and Mary tells her to, you know, preserve the water. And then years, many years later, then uh, that boy, even though he does end up going with his father and the thieves later on, on the end, at the end on the cross, he comes to salvation. Powerful stories. Uh, other things, there are ancient legends that talk about how when Jesus, uh, the Holy Family was in Egypt, whenever they came into the presence of the idols of Egypt, that the idols would all fall down on their face, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> which would, of course, upset the people involved there. And that's actually a parallel to the Old Testament, too, where the Ark of the Covenant gets uh, captured by the enemies of Israel, and they bring it into the shrine or the temple that they have for their god, Dagon, and leave it overnight. When they come back, Dagon's uh, idol has fallen face down on the floor, and every time they put it in there, he does that. So it's kind of parallel to that as well. But just beautiful showing how God's provision and that things look really dire, how he'll either got to work a miracle for food or water, or he'll send some per person to them who takes pity on them and helps them. Um, and how they begin to be witnesses, even in Egypt, not just to the Egyptians, but to Jewish people who lived in Egypt. And a lot of them did at that time, especially in Alexandria, but other places as well. And in the visions, they see those people as having had so little contact with their the Jewish community back in Israel that they've begun to lose their faith and to adopt other practices. But the Holy Family becomes a witness to them. You mentioned uh, courage. I'm going to hand it over to Joe, Joe Racinello. You mentioned courage, I think, in my mind all the time. Yeah, robbers, you know, like having to deal with thieves on the road and stuff like that, that must have been nothing compared. To, I'm being serious. To have to deal with the woman you're betrothed to is pregnant. <laughs> And having to deal with the community, as as and and as we know, as you know, that community treated the woman caught in adultery and everything else. Uh, that could have been a major problem. You talk about having having faith and courage. That alone shows you, uh, you know, what kind what kind of man he was. Joe Resinello. You mentioned a lot of the virtues, Paul. I, I want to just mention one you didn't know it was obedience. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is a key virtue that we need today as Catholics. Um, if God tells you something through his church or even through something like a dream that you know to be, that doesn't always make sense to people. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to you. You know what I mean? But you got to do it. And I think that's missing in our society. It's almost like a bad word, obedient. You're obedient. Joseph was obedient to God. So is Mary. And to be a good Catholic, we have to be obedient. And if God tells us something, that means it can be done. That requires faith, obviously. But if he tells you something as a father, like you have to be open to life, basic church tells us that. That means it can be done because God said so. Talk about the obedience of Joseph. That's what I always, when I think of Egypt, I think of this man was obedient. You said like, yes, sir. Well, that's just what he said. He said, yes, sir. It makes no sense. Go to Egypt. What do you mean go to Egypt? What are you crazy? I'm not going to Egypt. But to be Catholic, and I'm sure you've gone, you know, you mentioned, you know, you went to Yale, you studied theology, you know, you read 60 books. I'm sure in your own life, 
you've encountered stuff like that. People are like, Paul, what are you doing? What are you doing? And you're like, no, no, I'm obedient to the voice that's telling me to do this. Talk about that because that is so important. God has a plan that's better than our plan. If we just listen to him and execute. Well, let me give an example from my life. That's uh, I'm so glad you said that. Um, so when I went off to Yale, uh, a brand new Christian, because uh, my conversion happened at the end of my senior year of high school, I was going to a place that I wanted to go to for years. My parents were thrilled that I was going. Um, God had made provision you know, for scholarship, that kind of thing. So here I am, born from the deep south, going off to, to New England. It's like going to a foreign country in many ways, to Connecticut. And first semester, everything went great. Things are going well. Toward the end of the semester, I can't go into too many details. It would take the whole time we've got. But um, I feel like God speaks to me uh, through a song that's being sung in one of our uh, Christian fellowship meetings. And the line was, it was the original composition of the singer, was that, is there anything worth having that isn't worth giving up? And somehow those words could have meant a lot of things to different people. But what the Lord said to me is, I want you to drop out of school. And my first thought is, oh, I can't do that. What are my parents going to say? What, what about my future? What about <clears throat> so many other things? But but he kept pressing me. And I said, okay, Lord, I, I think you're saying it, but I need some confirmations. And and he did. It was, I mean, you would be amazed at the different confirmations that came, how someone had encouraged me that uh, that if God is speaking to you, um, take it to the people that you know, who know you best and trust trust the Lord, know the Lord well, and see what they think. And one by one, first of all, my my closest um, college female friend, and then my closest male college friend, and then my closest adult male friend, and my closest female friend adult, one by one, independently, all said to me before I could say anything, Paul, I was praying for you, <clears throat> and the Lord told me you're going to be leaving. Why? Each one of them had... <clears throat> God had revealed it to him. And because of that and some some other things, I said, okay, I've got to do this. So I did. Uh, it created a you know problem with my parents, of course, at the beginning. But he had said to me, I'll show you what to do. And in fact, I actually I should even mention, um, I was a Pentecostal at that time, and I went to an Assembly of God church in New Haven there in the town. Total strangers all over me, all around me. And I'm praying, God, please, you got to speak to me about this. And all of a sudden, there comes... Um, a message in tongues, as Pentecostals often have, and then someone who stood up to give the interpretation. And the interpretation was, yes, I'm asking you to leave your education behind, and you're wondering, how will I have my education, Lord? And I'm telling you, I'm like Abraham, you're like Abraham, I'm sending you to another place, and I will take care of you. Wow. You know, so anyway, I did it. And meanwhile, then on my way home from Connecticut, the Lord put something in my hand from a friend that says, go into the mission field. I'm going to show you where. And I went to Europe and was the lead singer to Christian Rock Band. And for two years, sang about Jesus and helped a number of conversions and also worked with uh, people who are, uh, had substance abuse problems. Two of the best years of my life. And at the end of that, the Lord says to me, I'm walking out in a wee field one day praying. He says, now it's time to go back. Are you sure? Yes, it's time to go back. So I ended up going back. And what I realized was that uh, at a place like Yale, in the religious studies department, if that was going to be my major, there were a lot of folks teaching who were not people of faith. And who, I mean, one of them actually admitted to me privately that 
he had lost faith in seminary. And now when I ask him, so why are you teaching religion if you don't believe in it? He said, well, I've, I've seen the darkness and I'm trying to, to teach that to my students. And I thought, that's awful. Um, but I realized after that, and once I finally did graduate from Yale, um, that if I hadn't had those two years after my immediate, you know, a conversion, to study deeply, I began, during that time I was reading C.S. Lewis, eventually reading Chesterton, reading all kinds of folks going deep in the scripture. I probably would have lost my faith, but it was God's plan all along. Yes, he brought me that far. He had me drop out. It was very important that I be able to obey and give up what at that time was probably the, <laughs> just about the most important thing that I possessed. But then to bring me back and, uh, and show me um, how I could make it through that program without losing my faith. That's kind of a long story, but uh, it's the same kind of thing. It's a, okay. it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great story, um, and it wasn't that long, <laughs> but, it, but that's a great story. But that's why we're encouraging people to go out and buy your book um, because you've written so many books, and you're a great writer. And this one is The Life of St. Joseph as Seen by the Mystics. You can buy it at Tam Books. We, uh, Joe mentioned obedience. We're talking about the fact that St. Joseph didn't say anything. We don't have anything in Scripture. We don't even have one spoken word by this man. See, they got 30 years, roughly, okay, where, well, maybe it's a little— Maybe it's a little less than 30 years. We know that Jesus was probably in his, I guess what, early teens when they found him in the temple. This is this is after their return from Egypt. So we would assume he probably was around 12 years old or so, something yeah. like that. Okay. So you got 20 years from there until later on. Okay. We see Jesus later on. And you have this whole hidden life, these hidden years about the, the Holy Family. You know very little other than Jesus was obedient to Mary and Joseph, okay? But what else do the mystics tell us about that that 20-year period? I find it fascinating because you mentioned the Passion of the Christ. Joseph's gone by the, in the story anyway, in the Passion of the Christ, the movie, Joseph's gone to his reward um, at that point, and Jesus is making a table. <laughs> you know, Jesus is making a table for a rich man, uh, So, uh, which I thought was great. So what's going on in that 20 years, according to the mystics, Paul? Well, it's really beautiful. I think kind of two aspects to that time. One is his Joseph's relationship to Mary, and the other is his relationship to to Jesus, which of course are deeply intertwined. But um, with Mary, you begin to see um, this just beautiful sense of reverence for her, knowing <laughs> she's, she's the mother of the Messiah, the mother of God, and kind of in the beginning, kind of wondering, you know, how terrifying that would be. Talk about courage. I'm the guardian of. The son of God and his mother out of life. And and Mary herself wanted to say, I want to defer to my husband. That's the right thing to do. But he's saying, Oh, I want to defer to you. You're the mother of God. <laughs> uh, and they almost a comical scene at one point where they're just kind of trying to defer to each other and and finally just have to come to, you know, a, a deeper understanding of how they're they're to relate. But during that, to see how how devotedly he cared for her, the things he would do for her to um to make her comfortable, to provide for her, the great grief he would feel when when it looked like something wasn't being provided and God had to do it, the uh, humility of you know turning to the Lord. I, I don't know what to do, Lord. How do I do this? So that's a beautiful part of it. Um, but also then his relationship to Jesus. It it shows Jesus in the workshop. They see Jesus in the workshop, and as a little boy learning to do things uh, in the workshop. And <clears throat> one of the things I love most is they talk about how. Um, Joseph loved having Jesus around, of course. You could imagine 
imagine. You love having your son around anyway, but your father does. But if your son is Jesus, oh my goodness, what light and peace and refreshment would come from that and strength. But Mary also really likes having him around. And so you see those two beginning to find excuses, even though they really want to keep them to themselves, themselves, each of them, find excuses to send them on an errand to the other so that the other one can be refreshed. So he's working with Joseph, and Joseph really wants him there, but he says, ah, Mary hadn't seen him yet much today. So he, he says, "Here's I want you to give this to your mother, and he sends him off to his mother knowing that he'll stay with her for a while. That kind of thing where this just mutual respect and care, sacrificial, that's a small way, but also in you know, bigger ways too. And then with Jesus and his obedience, but also another aspect, they saw um, that the neighbors and the customers who came to Joseph's shop uh, were not at all understanding and were a great trial for him. Uh, that he, And he, he went through the trial fine, but they would say things like, that boy of yours, he's really smart. You know, he, He's reading all this stuff. He doesn't need to be in this workshop. He should be a rabbi. Why are you doing this? This isn't fair what you're doing to him. And Joseph couldn't, he knew exactly why. Jesus was there, but he couldn't say, you know, that, that as we find out later in the gospel, when they ask him, who is your rabbi, that Jesus will say, God, the father is my rabbi, is my teacher. He's not going to study with some other rabbi, um, human, you know, human rabbi. And so he has to put up and it, it shows his patience. That's another uh, um, virtue we haven't yet mentioned, but shows his patience with these customers and with these neighbors. We're all trying to tell him his business and what he should do and accusing him of not loving his son and accusing him of, of mistreating his son, but he knows he's doing exactly what he's supposed to do for his son. And day to day, I mean, he'll even say, well, you know, you have a, have a point there that he is, he, he is very wise beyond his years and things, but he needs to be here. So that's a beautiful thing too, that mm -hmm. again and again, they would criticize him and come against him, but in his patience, he just keeps going. Paul, one question I would ask, and I want to hand it over to Joe. Um, Maybe a quick comment from you. When I when I think of the Holy Family in light of what you just described, I think of I, I I can't help but juxtapose that model of the family. All right, with what we have nowadays, and the word that comes to mind is they must have had an awful amount of peace, a whole lot of peace in that family. To think about to think about not worrying about one minute to the next the way, and we're guilty of it. I'll raise my hand. We're all to a degree, and we're worried. We're all squirrels chasing the nut, so to speak, and you know, trying to make sure we have enough money and everything else. And we have peace to a degree. Okay, we're Catholic, so we know we have we have peace to a degree. But they must have been the most peaceful family, no, like knowing that everything that they could possibly want, and again, in a very humble way, not in terms of riches. But just everything they need, God is going to provide because God's sitting right there. Um, just talk about the idea of peace, and then I want to hand it over to Joe. You do see that. So, for instance, and what I just mentioned, um, peace in the midst of this criticism from the neighbors. Peace, in the, and they often show that they, they were poor. And, uh, you know, we know that just from the fact that uh, when they went to present Jesus in the temple and had to bring the, the sacrifice, they had to give the sacrifice given by the poor of, of turtle doves. Uh, rather than than a lamp, and so and they were poor, and yet his patience in that, their patience in that, and the peace they had that God's going to provide. So situations would come up again and again in these stories about um, things that if it had happened to me, I would have said, "Oh my, you know, there goes my peace." I'm panicking, um, but that they didn't panic. Joseph would grieve when, um, so for instance, going to Bethlehem, and she's uh, she's great with child and. 
Um, and he knows he's got to take her. She's confirmed that she's got to go with him because she knows he's Jesus has to be born in Bethlehem. And and he's doing everything he can. He has relatives there because that's, you know, he's from Bethlehem. And and he thinks for sure they're going to help him with a place to stay. And none of that, all that falls apart. And you get him just, you know, in tears, the point of tears. Or what do I do? And and it's not that he has a lack of faith. He's just asking now, now what's next? He still has peace, even though he has grief. And that's so important for us to, to understand that peace doesn't mean that there's there's no storm around. It just means that in the middle of it. I love that old story where you may have heard it before, where there was a contest where people were asked to paint, do, do painting, a painting of peace. How would they illustrate peace and then see who won? And the one that won was a painting of a great storm uh, crashing on the shore of the sea and a big rock in the middle of it, winds and waves and everything. But there was a bird standing on on the rock who is totally unmoved and that's you know, it's a beautiful that's what i see in this kind of story mm -hmm. there's a storm around them all the time herod's coming after the kids and um things you know the, the neighbors there at nazareth and the egyptians of egypt and all that but this place of peace in the midst of the storm that god is our rock here we are thank you for that paul joe arsinello well, talk about how these visions could fill in the blanks for people, because um, I think they can. Because something there's something very basic about Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. It's a family. Most people take that route in life. Some, you know, obviously are priests or nuns. Most people are married. And I think, like, these visions, which you articulate in this book, could really add color to our prayers. And I'll use a personal example. Like when I pray the rosary, I think of the movie, The Nativity. It was a Protestant movie, but there's many images in that movie that help me when I pray that, you know, particular mystery. Because uh, it puts it, you mentioned the passion of the Christ, the film. I think of the scourging when I pray the rosary. Um, I think this book can fill in the blanks for people because there's not a lot in scripture. And these are, listen, they're legitimate saints. I mean, it's not like, you know, uh, just anybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Talk about how they could help people because I think it can and will. You know, St. Ignatius of Loyola, who founded the Jesuits, a wonderful saint, um, known for spiritual exercises, but also for the Ignatian um, approach to to scripture study in particular meditation on the gospels one of the things he encouraged uh gospel readers to do as the faithful to do is to when they read a gospel story to put themselves in the story it may be that they just see themselves as a, a quiet observer who doesn't occur in the story but it's just there watching uh maybe they see themselves as one of the people in the story so what would it be like uh, the rich young, young ruler what would it be like to imagine you are the young, rich young ruler? And how do you respond to what Jesus says? And what are people around? And you begin in your imagination. And it's funny, in, in Pentecostal circles, we used to call it a sanctified imagination, that uh, you use your imagination in a, in a sanctified and a holy way to imagine what would what would have looked like? What would Jesus have looked like? What would the children around him look like? What would the other people, what were they doing? What was the landscape? Even what was the weather maybe? But to realize that it, it was a real thing. It's not just a story. It really happened, and it's concrete historical occurrence. And what would I have done in that situation so that it begins to be real to you? And I've reading this and working you know, to put this compilation together. That's something I discovered again and again, that it was pressing me basically to use the Ignatian method, the gospel, to put myself in there. It was as if through the eyes uh, and the ears of the, the visionaries, the mystics, um, 
I was being placed in the middle of it and seeing all these things and hearing all these things, like you said, that helped to fill in the gaps, that helped me understand how scary it would have been to go to Egypt. Um, uh, or even at the, at the end of his life, we may want to talk about that some, what it would have been like for, for Joseph to, to die before he gets to see Jesus launched into ministry. Beautiful things that press us to think deeply, uh, not just about the Holy Family, but about ourselves and our own lives. Do you um, do you think that one of the reasons why I, I I think you'd have to be completely ignorant if you didn't believe that the family, obviously we're Catholic, so we know it's taking place. But even if you're not Catholic, see that the family is under constant attack. The structure of the family, father, mother, children, um, that that families gain strength from the from the model of the Holy Family, um, and that very model which helps us to thrive as human beings. Okay, and and God willing, get to heaven. All right, is what is under constant attack. Uh, it's the, I think it's the the primary target in this culture war. This spiritual battle is the family. Talk about that a little bit, Paul. How could we? How could we as men in particular? How about the a more um, specific question? How could we as men or family men take a lesson from both what we know of Saint Joseph, what the mystics have said about Saint Joseph, to better to better protect our families from the onslaught that's that that we're experiencing right now yeah i want to say first uh folks who are familiar with the the um the mystical experiences at fatima the children of fatima when our lady appeared there and that has been approved by the church um saint sister lucia um reports that at one time she heard um our lady say that the kind of the last great attack of the enemy on the church will be on the family. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we're at the end of the you know, end of the world or the second coming, but just we seem to be in that at least that, that last period or some version of it that um, the attack is on the family. And it, it makes sense if um, the family is is where you know God's heart is, and even for single individuals, I think they know they grow up in a family usually, and um, we learn so much. We when we are damaged so much, if, if there's damage done to us, it happens in our youth and the family. And I think that the dads today, first of all, they have to be aware that a battle's going on. Uh, you know, I'll meet fathers who just <clears throat> seem oblivious to the fact that, you know, they've given their kids, uh, young kids, a cell phone or something like that, mm -hmm. oblivious to the fact of the kind of stuff that goes on. Like, you mean my elementary school kid has been receiving sexting? messages from kids in his elementary school you bet um you mean that these kids we had over for you know for a sleepover they were showing all kinds of things they've got dads have to be aware that the battles mm. out there and these things are going and you've got to be um connecting with your kids all the time and talking about these things what are you what are you getting from your kids you know, what, what do you hear do, are they watching tv or what kind of music are they listening to um it's unlike anything. I mean, this this recent thing with the Grammys, where oh. that singer was openly portraying Satan and being worshipped, and and you know the network before sent out a tweet saying, "Oh, get ready to worship about this with a picture of him." Yeah, I think a lot of folks just don't realize how how bad it is out there. So you've got to be aware first of all. You've got to be willing to say to your children no to certain things doesn't matter that everybody else has it. It doesn't matter that everybody else does it. Your kids may be angry at you, but you're not your kid's best friend first. You have to be your, your kid's father. You know? um, and you have to work 
excuse me, work with your wife to be in agreement on these things. That's a, often a problem where they're not on the same page. The other thing I would encourage, so the best thing you can do for our culture is plow the field you've been given and plant the field you've been given, and that's your own family. But I think, too, especially, you know, my, uh, my situation now, I'm a grandfather, uh, to see how I can pour into the lives of my grandkids. I thank goodness my grandkids have a great, my daughter and her husband are fine Catholic folks, and their um, their kids are growing up in a great Catholic home. But there's still ways that I can contribute to their spiritual growth and formation with, with the parents' you know, approval. Um, I would encourage men who have got to come a long way in this to consider at least an informal way to be mentoring other men and other dads. You have so many men out there going into family life who grew up in a in a home without a dad themselves. They don't have any role models. The only role models they see are in, you know, the media. Um, they could just use another dad and an older dad to come alongside. And you don't have to say, I'm going to be your mentor. It's <laughs> just to get to know them, to spend time with them. And when they mm-hmm. begin to trust you to start, they'll start asking you questions. Well, how did you handle this for your kids? Or, you know, have you ever come up with this? So important. So many young well, men need mentors. Weeks- we could be helpful. We could obviously we could be helpful to those men. And then we have help in St. Joseph. And you yes. wrote the book, The Life of St. Joseph is Seen by the Mystics, out from Tan Books. Paul Thigpen, unfortunately, we're on radio, so we're out of time, brother. But always a great conversation with you. And we're so thrilled that you decided to come on the show. We're happy for your success. And we encourage everybody to go out and buy. Paul's book, buy it from Tan Books, buy it at your local Catholic bookstore, and if need be, buy it at Amazon. Uh, so, Paul, thanks again, brother, and we'll talk to you soon. Joe and Joe, God bless you and all your listeners. Thanks for having me on. God bless you, and thank you, everybody out there, for joining us at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith of the New York City metropolitan area. Two things, download the app, share it with your friends. You'll have access to all of our station's content. And please follow Joe and I on social media. Help us out. Share our videos if you like them. Subscribe, follow, all that fun stuff. Frontline with Joe and Joe on YouTube and at with Joe and Joe on Twitter, at with Joe and Joe. Thank you again. And remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.